Yeah, all good. Uh, look, welcome if you're on Zoom. Uh, I won't look at you that often because it's pretty boring to look at my phone. Uh, but um, it really is great that you can connect in and I hope you're getting a reasonable kind of experience of church. It's, it's wonderful to be back for those of you who are here. Uh, welcome. Uh, if this is your first time with us, let me add my welcome. My name's Dave and I'm a pastor here at SALT. And uh, it's good to have you with us. If you've recently moved into the area or if you're looking for a church, if you just want to chat and find out a little bit more about what goes on here, love to connect with you and uh, tell you a little bit more as to what's happening. Uh, I want to thank too uh, those of you who are particularly here to support uh, Nathan and Katie. It's great to have Katie's mum and dad here. Uh, Steve Watt, who's working with the university ministry in Port Macquarie here to uh, join in today as well. And I hope that in a few weeks time when Katie starts uh, with the campus ministry, we might be able to pray for her as she does that as well. At, at least it's a great way to get the realised to come to church. Uh, we, we live in a great part of the world, don't we? Uh, I can still remember, it's almost four years ago when we moved up here, and in three days we had people say things like, welcome to paradise, uh, isn't it great living in heaven on earth? Uh, this is a terrific place, why would you live anywhere else? And many people move here, and indeed, I suggest over the last year or so, lots of people have moved up here for lifestyle reasons. Uh, whether it's less of the hustle and bustle uh, of the city, whether it's perhaps less of the stress that goes with that, maybe some of the pandemic fear of living in major cities, or just the realisation that work is not everything. People come here for lifestyle reasons. And there were many, I think, who would say that we live a very blessed life up here. Uh, the climate is uh, boasts one of the best in Australia. Uh, the beaches are terrific. Uh, we, we've got great health system. We've got all kinds of resources available to us. Uh, people are able to enjoy life as they want on the mid-north coast. And it, it really is one of the measures that people have of life now, isn't it? Are you happy? Are you enjoying life? Are you fulfilled in life? Are you getting what you want from your life? Are you enjoying your best life here and now? Uh, it's interesting, over the course of the pandemic, when things have been shut down, what it is that people miss. Uh, people miss the opportunity to go to the hairdressers. People miss the opportunity to go shopping. People miss the opportunity to get on an aeroplane and travel and see the world. We're very well looked after in this place. And I doubt there would have been too many people living in the third world who would have missed international travel over the pandemic. Now, is it true that we have the blessed life here? Is it true that this is the best that life has to offer? Well, we're going to be challenging this as we look at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a very famous speech uh, it's famous amongst Christians and churched people, but it's famous well beyond that as well. Uh, you may know that Mahatma Gandhi had a great interest in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he said if this was the only piece of literature that he could access, then he would call himself a Christian. He was so committed to the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he said it wasn't as good as the Bhagavad Gita, and other Hindu documents, 
but he was very, very impressed. And many people, and indeed probably most people, who've read this teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, have been profoundly impacted by it. Uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, who was famous for offering to pay huge sums of money to the Pope to absolve him from his sins, uh, said that the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount were all that was needed in his mind to do enough to be right with God. But I wonder whether Frank Sinatra had actually read chapter 5 and verse 48. Let me read you chapter 5 and verse 48 from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. It says this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, this is a standard of life to keep. In order to be right with God, we fail. We won't measure up. This is not a new law. <clears throat> Pardon me. Jesus is not replacing the Ten Commandments with a new set of commandments. But he is teaching what life in the kingdom will look like. Now let's uh, go back and look a little bit at the context here. In chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus starts his public preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He's teaching about the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 4, verse 19, he starts to gather his disciples, his followers. He says, come, follow me. And we get Peter and Andrew and James and John laying down their nets, giving up their worldly work to follow the master, to walk with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to apprentice to Jesus. And now Jesus gathers together with his disciples. Look at the beginning. You might want to open up your handouts or look at your Bible. You see, Jesus sees the crowds. There's lots of people gathering. And he goes up, therefore, on a mountainside and sits down. And his disciples come to him and he begins to teach them. This is teaching for those who've made a decision to follow Jesus. This is discipleship training 101. This is how you will live if you take Jesus seriously. Jesus has his disciples and he's calling on them and he's teaching them what following him is to look like. Now I want to fast forward with you to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, to chapter 7. It goes for three whole chapters. It's the biggest teaching section in Matthew's Gospel. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read this in chapter 7 and verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So what's happened? Do you notice it? Jesus sees the crowds, goes up a mountain, his disciples follow and he starts teaching his disciples. He's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching, he gets to the end of his teaching and all the crowd is amazed at his teaching. They've all followed. They've all gone up. So I take it that what we've got here in Jesus' teaching is, is teaching for his followers, timing is everything, teaching for his followers that the crowds get to listen in on. The key thing, if we are to put this into practice in our lives, is to start by following Jesus. Now, I haven't had a personal conversation with everybody in this room, 
But let me say this, what Jesus talks about for the next few weeks that we're going to be looking at, don't go away from here thinking, if I can just put this into practice, my life will be blessed. No, it'll probably be frustrated. Rather, think, I need to follow Jesus. What's Jesus on about? What does Jesus want from me? And of course, we don't discover all of that till we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus has died on a cross and been raised from the dead, and he's calling people to follow him and to go out and call people from all the nations to become followers of him, and he tells them that he's going to be with them forever. So let's look then at what Jesus has to say. If you, have, if you glance down uh, this first section that we're looking at, what we've got is often called the Beatitudes, the blessed statements. You see, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. You can keep reading down. Here is a picture of what it is to be blessed. Um, the word blessed actually means to be happy. Uh, but happy sounds a little bit glib, doesn't it? I mean, if you're happy, clap your hands. It sounds a little bit glib. Uh, it's a deep happiness that's on view. It's the idea that this is the real life. This is what really matters. This is what's worth having. This is the life to be envied. This is the truly blessed way to be. This is the one to be congratulated, if you like. In other words, this is truly hashtag blessed. Not the Instagram picture of a wonderful glass of wine against a sunset, but some rather countercultural things from Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus is on about some reversals here. And what we need to understand is Jesus hasn't just plucked a bunch of random things from anywhere and said, you need to be upside down, inside out, you need to be countercultural. No, Jesus is, is, as he has been already in Matthew, fulfilling scripture. Um, the whole four, first four chapters of Matthew kept saying, didn't they? And this fulfills, and this fulfills, and Jesus did this to fulfill. Even as he teaches them, he is fulfilling scripture. And I've put a number of references on your handouts where you'll find these ideas of what it is to be poor in spirit, what it is to mourn and be comforted, the meek and the inheritance of the earth or the land, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and so on. I'm not going to go through those references now. I encourage you to do it for yourself during the week. But what you'll see is so many of them come from the last part of the book of Isaiah. It's rather like... Jesus is soaked in Isaiah that he knows that he's come to be the fulfilment of the promised salvation that will come through the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. And so as he gives these beatitudes, as he gives these blessed statements, he's giving us an insight into what God had promised way back then, now finding its fulfilment in him. And we're going to see that again and again and again through Matthew's Gospel. Because the New Testament doesn't come into a vacuum. It fulfills the whole backdrop of the Old Testament that has come before. 
Jesus is on about fulfilling a mission. He's bringing in the kingdom, and the kingdom will be massively countercultural. One of the people who's written perhaps more than most on the Sermon on the Mount is a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, you may have heard of him. You may have heard of his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote another wonderful little book about the nature of church, uh, what it is to be part of Christ's body. He's a man who is, who is deeply soaked in the scriptures, who understands that to live as a Christian is to be completely out of step with the prevailing values of the world. And the prevailing values of his world were Nazi Germany. It ended up costing him his life. But he writes about how Jesus is transforming us, how he's uncompromising in his countercultural call to his followers. In fact, he goes so far as to say, if you want your life to remain as it is, don't read this because it's not safe. Now, there's a warning. If you want to leave now, you might. I hope you don't. So keep your, keep your Bibles open as you read this. Uh, and notice also, when you look closely at this, what he's talking about is not simply external things. You can't sum this up in things that you do, because this touches on things that you are. It, it touches not just on saying and doing, but thinking attitude, priorities, values, what's going on in the heart. Which is not surprising when you look there at verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. And you see that in other places. That is a thirst for righteousness, a meekness within, a mourning for things, a desire to be at peace. So let's not think that this is about putting on a performance. This is about transformation transforming the attitude, changing the heart, inside, out, deep down, the spirit of God at work. And so this is a part of scripture which should call us to pray. Call us to pray because this isn't something we can do for ourselves. This is something we need God to do in us and for us. All right, we are going to get to it now. So I've divided this this uh, teaching of Jesus here into three parts. My division is somewhat artificial, as is any division in Scripture. It's one and, and uh, a whole. But the three parts, just to give us a little bit of a, a kind of overall understanding of what's going on. The first four verses, I think we can understand as Jesus talking about Matters of the heart in terms of how we treat God in our life. Uh, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, uh, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These have got to do with the inner attitude of the heart. These have got to do with not putting ourselves first, but God first. The, the person who is like this is full of God, not full of self. The person who's full of self isn't meek. They're not poor in spirit. They're rich in spirit in their own eyes. They're, they're not mourning for the state of the world and the, and the sin in their heart. They're prideful and rejoicing in all they can accomplish. Now, the, as you look at the background here in Isaiah, this is very much... A mourning and meekness 
and thirst for righteousness that is shaped by the word of God, where I look into the mirror of my own heart and I go, this is not right. This is not how I should be. Deep down, I have problems. I live in a, a community that has problems. I live in a world that has problems. And our biggest problem is we fill ourselves with ourselves and not with God. We need to be full of God. And see, so the person who is poor in spirit knows they need more of God. And so they can rejoice because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn for their own sin and the sin of their world, they will be comforted because the Saviour has come to bring hope and new life. Those who are meek and not putting themselves forward, they will inherit the earth. I actually think the picture here is they will inherit the land. Uh, it's the same word in the Greek. But if you go back and look at the original context, I, I think it's picking up on the idea of the promised land that will be theirs as a, a symbol or a picture, if you like, of, of the kingdom of heaven that will be theirs. And then those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled because they will have the righteousness that comes from God himself. So how do you treat God? Are you full of God? Or full of self? Or are you more full of self than you are full of God? Those who would follow Jesus need to be aware of what they are like. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to not pretend. We are called to be self-aware that deep down we need to be transformed by the Spirit of God. And this will lead us to prayer. So the first thing, not to be uh, full of self, but to be full of God. The, the next group of verses, I think, could be characterised as how we treat others. Look at verses 7, uh, 8 and 9. Blessed are the merciful, for they should be shown mercy. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That kind of belongs in the first lot, but anyway. And, and then, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Merciful. Peace for peacemakers. In other words, we need to be more full of others than we are full of self. To be more full of others than we are full of self. Other people are to matter more to us than ourselves matter to us. We need to be more concerned about wrongs done to others than wrongs done to us. We need to be more concerned for those who suffer at the hands of others than our own personal suffering. That's what Jesus is saying. We are to be merciful. That is, we are to be there for the sake of those in need. We are to be uh, peacemakers, calling people into relationship with God where there is to be ultimate peace, but to be restoring relationships as we have opportunity in this life. Not to be divisive, not to be antagonistic, not to be able to get others but to be reconciling, to be peacemakers. And, you know, people who are like that are, are, are very attractive, aren't they? You know, people who put others first, people who are always seeking to reconcile, people who are generous in the way that they look out for others, people who sacrificially serve those around about them. They're, they're very attractive people. It's not surprising because they're more and more like Jesus. Jesus is the one who shows us what this really looks like. 
when we think about this, I think we can come to understand what God is calling us to be like if, say, you're a parent, you think about who you would like your children to grow up to be. If you're hoping to be married one day, who you might like to be married to. If you're wanting to get a job, what kind of a boss you'd like. If you are a boss, what you'd love from your employees. What kind of a reference you'd like. Or what would you want people to say about you at your funeral? That he or she was such a, a, a wonderful peacemaker. They were generously looking out for those around about them. That's attractive stuff, isn't it? So how we treat God, how we treat others. And then in the last few verses, it kind of changes. It's how we are willing to be treated by those around us and what attitude we have to that. Read these verses. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How are we treated because we follow Jesus? It's interesting that the change in culture over the last couple of decades, where Christians have moved from being seen as basically good people to now being treated as dangerously bad people. Uh, how do we respond to that when it comes to us? How do we respond when, when we're ridiculed, when we're insulted, when we're neglected, when we're overlooked, when we're cancelled, when we're treated badly because of Jesus? I hear Christians uh, sometimes in social media over the last little while talking about being persecuted as Christians in the West and it jars a little bit with me because I, I think that much of what's being called persecution is so different to people who might be crucified upside down for professing to be Christian or people who don't know if turning up to church is going to be at threat of having their church bombed or burnt down in that week. We know a young woman whose father and two brothers were burnt alive in a car in a foreign country because of their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That sounds like persecution to me. Um, not being able to post something about Jesus on Facebook doesn't sound quite the same, does it? But I'm interested to look again at what Jesus says here. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Maybe you haven't been persecuted like that, but perhaps you have been insulted. Perhaps you have had people judge you harshly, slander your name, criticise you unfairly because of Jesus. Well, Jesus says, whether it's hardcore persecution, or whether it's being rejected by your immediate family, or whether it's not getting the same consideration from your boss, or whether it's having somebody stop friending you on Facebook, 
or whether it's having criticism from those around about you for being Christian, you are blessed. Why would he say that you are blessed? Well, it's not because being tortured and killed is a good thing. It's not even because being slandered or criticised, insulted or cancelled is a good thing. It's because of me, Jesus says. That is, they're aligning themselves. If we're following Jesus, we're aligning ourselves with him. If we cop it badly because we've aligned ourselves to Jesus, then it's not ultimately bad. It's actually good. It's blessed. It's to be congratulated. It's the best thing. Why so? Well, we need perspective and patience. We need perspective and patience. Notice the way Jesus speaks here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They've got it already. But listen to this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called children of God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So whilst we have the kingdom of heaven now, if we belong to Jesus, we still await something that will happen. We live in, as Christians, we live in what we've sometimes heard described as the now but not yet. That is, we're with God. We are in relationship with God by his spirit. We're part of the kingdom of heaven already. Jesus is on the throne and he is our king But this is not all that there will be. We wait and we persevere and we put up with hostility in the meantime. Why is it worth being treated badly for being a Christian? Why might it even be worth being put in prison or being tortured or being killed for being Christian? What makes that worthwhile? For theirs will be. For they will have. See, it's what God has planned for the future that makes it worthwhile now. Unless we have a perspective that this life is not all there is. Unless we believe Jesus when he said to that thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Unless we know that Jesus is coming back to bring people to be with him, there is absolutely no point in in suffering in this life. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead and doesn't rule at God's right hand and is not coming back to judge the earth, then the most blessed that you can be is to live on the mid-north coast, have a, a happy life with lots of money and lots of friends and lots of travel and lots of stuff, which is really pretty pathetic, but it's the best that you can have. But if Jesus is coming back, then the best life is to put up with what might be happening here and now, knowing that we are truly blessed. Because Jesus has got this. We win in the end. We will be with God for all eternity. See, that's what makes a radical, countercultural, inside-out view on living this life so important. In fact, ultimately, it's the only way to live. For to live as though this life is all there is, is to live a fantasy that one day will be shown up for its hollow, 
and poor end. So friends, as we begin looking at this, and I think there's plenty for us to get our teeth into already, um, the world teaches us that we should live our best life now. Why does it do that? Because our world believes it's the only life we've got to live. And if this is the only life we've got to live, well, that's pretty sad, but you may as well make the most of it. Jesus says that we are called to live for a new future. And we are to live in the light of heaven, of eternity, of, of future with Jesus. And we are to plan for that future. And we are to live in the light of that future. We are to, to do things now with the end in mind. We are to plan with eternity in view. We're to live this life knowing that whatever we go through, there are true values that will be valuable forever and ever. And that as we follow Jesus, we'll discover more and more how good that is. I want to encourage you to read through uh, Matthew, to, to soak yourself with this. Go back too if you've got the time, and you do have the time really, just watch 10 minutes less TV, um, and read through the Old Testament verses behind this and you'll see some of the, the wonderful background. Isaiah 40 through to 66 is the gospel of the Old Testament. It's God coming to bring comfort to his people, to bring salvation to those who are captive, to give his son as a suffering servant, as a ransom for many. We'll see more of that as we read on. For now, let's pray for God's help. Loving Father, we ask that you'll help us to live for eternity, to live for the future that you have put in place through Jesus. Help us not to think that we've got to make our lives count, that we've got to live our best life now, but help us to be prepared to live a blessed life now by putting our trust in Jesus, trusting his words, trusting his promises, having our hope in Jesus for eternity. Amen.